Hello, my name is Catherine Maxwell-Stewart from Traquair House, and I'm here to welcome you back to the Beyond Borders Scotland podcast. Given recent debates about Scotland's role and voice in international affairs, we thought we should take a more historical look at Scotland's role in the world by sharing a festival talk on the subject between Professor Murray Pittock of Glasgow University, author of Scotland, The Global History, 1603 to the Present, and historian Willie Dalrymple, author of the best-selling book, The Anarchy. Together, they take a deep dive into Scotland's global history and role in the development of the modern world and economy. I will let Willie set the scene, so why not sit back and relax as two historians at the top of their game embark on a riveting and erudite account and exploration of Scotland's imprint and place in the world, both past and present. We hope you enjoy it and please follow and share the Beyond Borders Scotland podcast wherever you listen. One of the nice things about being a writer is you get sent advanced manuscripts uh, of books. It's not always a nice thing because some of them are things you might want to avoid commenting on. But uh, in uh, March or April this year, I got a lovely thick uh, envelope uh, full of this wonderful book uh, in its proof form uh, and devoured it uh, in in a couple of sittings. Uh, And Murray's book on Global Scotland is one I would hugely recommend to every person in this room. It's an important subject, but it's also a touchy subject. And um, the Scots, I think, have always been very proud of their contribution. We all know the, the, the inventions that, we, uh, that we've made, the, uh, the extraordinary things we've done, but we've often managed to divorce it from the more difficult aspects of the last 300 years, namely, Scottish participation in the slave trade, in empire building, in massacres uh, across several continents, uh, and in the opium trade. Uh, and we're very happy to be, uh, you know, trailing behind Mel Gibson and shouting freedom, but often forget that we were the people uh, oppressing elsewhere. And to get both those stories in focus and to wield them into a single volume which is neither self-flagellating nor jingoistic uh, but which deals gives judicious weight in a sense to both sides of the scales is a very difficult thing and and in these years in these age of culture wars uh, uh, a rarer and rarer thing and and this is something that Murray has 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 pulled off spectacularly. Uh, Audiences will know Murray's long and distinguished bibliography, books on Culloden, uh, on the Enlightenment City, uh, on the myth of the Jacobite clans. Uh, But I would certainly say that anyone who has not already bought this book and devoured it uh, should do so and is in for a treat. But to ask a slightly naughty question first, Murray, uh, are you slightly uh, uh, avoiding the... um, the, the, uh, not grasping the thistle by calling it global Scotland rather than imperial Scotland, which which has a, a, a more uneasy ring. Uh, no, I don't think I, I I don't think I am. First of all, because there because there are two big things missing when you talk about the imperial Scotland or Scotland's empire. Uh, um, is everyone hearing me all right, or is that too loud? No, it's okay. So uh, imperial Scotland or Scotland's empire, and those are. First of all, there was a huge interest in trade. 
And Scotland's history begins with a desire to, con to, to develop and control trade. And Scotland's, Scotland's relatively weak range of exports leads to them wishing to control the imports from other countries that they're bringing into Scotland. So they try and control other countries' exports. That's, that's how Scottish, mer uh, Scottish merchant capitalism begins, if you like, with, the near, for example, the near control of the uh, total control of the timber trade in Bergen, um, uh, to, among many other examples. So there's the trading element, but there's also the European element. And a, a lot of commentary on Scottish diaspora and empire has said, oh, the European element ends after 1707, but it doesn't. It becomes less important from the 1750s, but it's not really till the end of the 19th century that we lose actually the, the extent of uh, Scottish emigration to continental Europe and actually the fulfilling of, of careers in continental Europe. You have a lovely section at the beginning of the book, which, I, which is very startling, on all the Scots going off to Leiden. Uh, and, and the Continental University. Do you want to just talk about that for a second? No. Yeah, so, so I mean, uh, 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 Leiden alone was Scotland's uh, fourth university in the late 17th and early 18th century in the sense that it actually produced uh, more uh, Scottish graduates, more Scottish students than, Ab than the Aberdeen universities did. So, that scale. Yeah, it's at that, that scale. Yeah. And uh, it was a situation where uh, more than half the Faculty of Advocates are educated at Leiden, and where the very significant numbers of other Scots, uh, elite Scots, is true, but you know, it's it's the the early modern world is an elite world. Uh, what, were they, what were they speaking? Leiden. What language are they? Well, they were speak. Uh, they could usually speak Latin and Dutch. Dutch. They could speak Lots Dutch. of Dutch literate Scots. Yeah, there were some yeah, yeah. quite a few Dutch literate Scot Dutch literate Scots. Goodness. Absolutely. Goodness. And I, my two of my forebears were on the ship in in sixteen eighty eight. Uh, yeah, coming over. <laughs> I said, well, uh, uh, well, quite. <laughs> so, so uh, exactly. I mean, the the role of of William Carstairs as as William's chaplain and then principal of Edinburgh was uh, more central than has yet been fully understood because although he occupied a relatively lowly role in patronage in the 1690s, actually he was far more important because of his his long uh, tradition of working for the Dutch secret service. Now, in, in um, the kind of popular preble view of, of Scotland's empire, yeah. Darien is the thing which sort of, the failure of Darien is the thing which propels everything that follows. Is that, is that wrong? Uh, yes. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, one of the, one of the, the, the reasons that, that things have got so wrong in the world is because uh, uh, we're always looking for a simple solution to a complex problem. And saying that Darien is the solution is, is exactly a, a case like that. Darien's the culmination of a lot of attempts to build the Scottish overseas trading empire in the, 18, in the 17th century. And they fail because of two things. They fail because really uh, the English government doesn't want it. And there's often so sometimes a conflict between the royal and non-royal interests in the, uh, in the English government. And secondly, they fail because Scotland can't actually project enough power. So uh, 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 Darien is the classic example of that. It involves a large amount of capital, and it's very clear Scotland doesn't have the power to project to, to enable it to succeed. And of course, it's viewed by the, Sp by the Spaniards explicitly as a, pi as a piratical uh, it's a, a episode. But one of the other problems that Scotland has is its closeness to the Netherlands means that when Scottish ships are, are trading on the high seas, they, in the 17th century, they're often viewed as um, Dutch ships sailing under a false flag. 
and attacked as potential uh, covert allies of the Netherlands. So it was a no-win situation. It was a no-win situation that they were in. But Darien is Darien is not exactly the tipping point. The the tipping point is very much the succession at that stage. And interestingly, just to say, yeah. it's actually the findings of the Scottish parliamentary inquiry into the into the massacre of Glencoe that makes up William's mind to support uh, a future union between I, the I two kingdoms. I think we should pass quickly over the massacre <laughs> of Glencoe. <laughs> um, so how, and again, in the, in the popular view, uh, the failure of Darien then leads directly to the Scottish elite wanting the union. Is, uh, is the urge for Global Scotland the principal driver to the union or only one of many factors? Well, the, most the thing that's most likely to guarantee your support the union as a member of the Scottish elite is if you're a convinced ideological Presbyterian. That is the most likely thing. So we shouldn't. Should we, yeah. uh, but then, of course, you have stuff which means nothing to us, so much, or so little to us today, uh, but hugely important at the time. Hugely important. The, hugely important at the time. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, there was an attempt to promote a, a union with the Netherlands to woo precisely this bunch of uh, this bunch of people at the time uh, but but uh, not sufficiently to of course be successful yes there were there were scots who saw the the future because it had been so restricted by the navigation acts which meant three quarters of trading ships under uh, an english flag had to be english uh, english born it, uh, uh, and uh, scottish trade had been seriously restricted by those acts so they saw it as a route to imperial markets but actually, a, uh, uh, the majority of the elite, and of course the vast majority of ordinary Scots, opposed the union. And the elite who opposed it saw it as cutting Scotland off from its largest... This is, sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? Its <laughs> largest tra traditional markets. So Scotland's largest export, uh, its largest export markets in 1706 were France and the Netherlands, and those its largest export markets in 2015. Literally. Yes. Holland still. Yeah. Uh, amazing, amazing. Um, Jacobite pirates. We can't pass over without uh, without a bit of pirates of the Firth of Forth. Uh, 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 well, I think we're going to we're going to go rather further than well, the Firth of Forth because uh, one of the things about the uh, about the Scottish government in the late seventeenth century is it only got by the the, uh, the turn of the century three regular ships in the Scottish Navy. It was reliant on a larger number of privateers, and what happened in the sixteen nineties was that privateers flying uh, James's flag, or had been authorized by James VII and II, were re uh, judged to be illegitimate by the English Privy Council, and then uh, uh, there was a judicial uh, finding against them in 1695 to 98. They became pirates overnight. Some people who'd been on both sides of the divide but hadn't jumped in time, like most famously William Kidd, ended up being hanged as a pirate because he'd originally been uh, a, 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 a James-authorized privateer right. in the French service, and then switched to William, but without getting all his ducks in a row. Uh, others continued uh, both to try and disrupt the East India Company trade, which the Jacobite pirates of Madagascar did, and there are about 1,000 Jacobite pirates in Madagascar uh, in 1705. They applied to the Scottish, uh, to, uh, the Scottish estates to have uh, Scottish citizenship in return. Now, pirates aren't all nice. In return for opening a trade of African slaves into uh, South and Central America, that was the, that was what they were proposing to do. They wanted they wanted the protection of of Scotland and they wanted Scottish citizenship in return for providing an a market in enslaved persons, of which there'd be a commission basis to Scotland. Can I? 
but but nonetheless, as later the, the, the Scottish pirates continued to Caribbean until 1718, about 35 percent of Golden Age pirate ships carried Jacobite names. So what sort of thing? The, what do uh, Queen Anne's Revenge, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> which is of course Teach Blackbeard, the Jacobite uh, who, who was uh, himself a Jacobite. It was his ship was Queen Anne's Revenge, Ormond, uh, King James. And King James restored, which I've kind of guessed means that if you're captured, you've got no way out. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> so, what's your ship called again? Can't remember. <laughs> and, the, and, and what are the kind of numbers here? What are, I mean, how, how many Scots privateer, Jacobite privateers are there? Or so, both? So we might look, I mean, that thousand in Madagascar, that's, it's difficult to all, all tangle by nationality. Yeah. So that's a thousand. A thousand men uh, uh, and women, not a thousand ships. So there are about there are about fourteen Scottish Jacobite pirate ships in the Caribbean in the second decade, in 1710 to 1720. And there's a scheme whereby, which is put to the Jacobite court in 1718, a bit of a wild card scheme where George Cammer could formerly been in the Royal Navy and was and was thrown out of it, where he proposes that they disrupt. Uh, the Guinea trade and uh, the return trade from the Caribbean, and that's the, uh, 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 as part of an overall Jacobite plot to undermine the financial basis of, of the, the new of the new British Empire. Brilliant. Yeah, and again, uh, from this period, one of the major figures, John Lord, John Lord. the Loriston, as, as he later became So, so Law, I think uh, uh, Law probably deserves a bit of a bad press, but a lot of the bad press that Law gets was uh, was due to the fact that he was trying out the currency, the, the fiat currency environment we now all enjoy, as it's almost its first begetter, to a, a public who were very keen on having coins in their pockets and specie. You wouldn't get, I tell you what, you wouldn't get far with contactless if you were dealing with 18th century <laughs> French society. And they, they would be wanting the stuff to be on horse, to be on horses and mules and weighed as bullion. So, so that's what, but law was part of this tradition. He saw the necessity of creating a global trading network which was properly capitalized, which obviously Scotland couldn't do, in order to, as he put it, put France on top of the world in its proper place among nations. So once again, law, and indeed uh, law's descendants, as you covered uh, so well in the, the anarchy and elsewhere, law's descendants became very strongly French patriots, since Scotland was no longer a patriotic option for and them. And founded the, the French East India Company, Company yes. de Zand, yes. uh, which then in, in locked in conflict with the English. Exactly. Uh, so after the Union, Scots begin to pour into, uh, into well, India initially, yes. uh, very quickly. What's the, what's the, I mean, very quickly, they, they're, they're higher proportion than, uh, Per, per population than the English. How, why is that, and how quickly does that happen? So the the, the classic reason that happens is that um, one of the best English politicians of the 18th century was Robert Walpole, and Walpole understood that um, the Jacobites were a, a major threat. He was very concerned by the size and scale of the 1715 Rising, and he took the view that pressure should be indirect and direct pressure should be put on the East India Company directors to appoint large numbers of Scots. So they did. And it was... My, my forebear, the second, <laughs> the second Sir Hugh Dalrymple of North Britain was known as the gateway to India. And yeah. The whole of all those Islothian families, the Dales, the, uh, 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 the 
the, the guys mm -hmm. who then go and take Sri Rangapatnam, uh, uh, all the whole of East Lothian joins up, uh, yeah. and and making making fast fortunes in in India. And then, and which in its turn, no doubt, feeds back into the local patronage network for the forty-five Scottish members of Parliament. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and then, how how quickly and how does the union affect Scots in the Caribbean and the slave trade? How, and, and 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 just answer the question first of all: How deeply involved are the Scots in the slave trade? Uh, the Scots are very significantly involved in the slave trade. I think if when people are familiar with the with the uh, controversy over Dundas, from the renaming of Dundas Street in Toronto to the explanatory plaque in Edinburgh. The paradox of Dundas is that, uh, of course, he appears for Joseph Knight in the, uh, the, the anti-slaving case in the 1770s, but as Dundas is probably an abolitionist, but his pat patronage network depends to far too great an extent on West Indian interests, who are Scots, who help to control his domestic patronage network and are themselves part of it in the, to, in de, to support abolition. So Scots are a disproportionate proportion of uh, British East India by the 1730s, 40s, uh, uh, so West India by the 1730s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, but they're also been active before that in uh, the Dutch possessions in the Caribbean in the 17th century. And the, some of them hold, although they're relatively few enslaved persons in Scotland, it's been estimated no more than 100 in the middle of the 18th century, a very low number. So that's part of the historic invisibility. There are Scots with huge trading empires, not least uh, perhaps, uh, I think most famously, Grant Oswald and co, who buy up from the Royal Africa Company when, they, uh, when it can't make it profitable, Bans Island uh, in the, the, uh, the edge of Sierra, what's now Sierra Leone, and uh, from Burns Island, they use that as a, as a receiving and trading port for the for um, enslaved persons supplied to them by local African king uh, local African kings. And there there are records of visitors to Burns Island seeing these these ins, uh, these uh, enslaved persons fully dressed in tartan, acting as caddies on the golf course that Grant and Oswald have put out. Grant subsequently makes a huge amount of money in supplying the British Army in the Seven Years' War. He gets, uh, he gets the contracts for extensive procurement internationally. And then in the end, uh, Oswald, who'd, who'd uh, uh, run the colony at Bans Island, uh, becomes the chief British negotiator at, in Paris for American independence in 1783. And uh, the, Benjamin Franklin much admires Richard Oswald, who he talks about in most encomious uh, terms. And Richard Oswald's vast fortune is built largely on enslaved persons. So by the mid to end 18th century, how much of the Scottish economy is coming in from slaves in India? Uh, Andrew McKillop thinks it's, it's, it's much larger than we've acknowledged. I think it's very, it is, so I, I wouldn't like to put a number on it, but abs the reinvestment, and here's a question about Scotland and Britain. When uh, Scots bring it back, they bring it back to reinvest in Scotland. They don't bring it back to reinvest in market basing. Uh, so uh, if they very invest in themselves, they buy themselves seats, but they often reinvest in industries, family businesses, structural networks. And um, that transforms Scotland's uh, per capita wealth from 60 to 70% of what you thought of as the UK average by the late 18th century to a situation where eventually it gets ahead of the UK average in 1851. 
and purchasing power, you need to run different price indexes in Scotland up to the 1780s and 90s. 1790 to 1820, they converge uh, because the Scottish economy is converging. It's converging because so much money is coming back uh, from uh, at that stage, India, not, it's, it's repatriated more extensively from the Caribbean. Well, after the abolition of slavery, though, there's a first wave after many of the merchants are displaced by the American War of Independence from the Chesapeake. Andrew, um, if Mark is in the audience, Andrew McKillop is someone we should definitely get uh, another year here to speak Explain. in person. But I remember him saying in one of his uh, lectures that there's, there's barely a, a town in Scotland without uh, with public, a public building in, in a town in Scotland, which has not got some sort of East India Company money uh, behind it. And, and you have uh, major uh, investment from India, India returned in, in every small town in Scotland. You see these things and, 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 it, and it transforms the, the look of the country yeah. in 100 years. It does in Scotland actually become, but Scotland also becomes more diverse because a lot of people uh, who are the children of uh, plantation owners in the West Indies are sent back uh, of mixed race background are sent back to Scotland to school, to, to be schooled there. And there's an extent to which the empire and indeed European immigrants continue to return their families to, uh, to Scotland yep. to be educated and to re-engage with the domestic networks. And there's a, there's a, a widespread perception that Scotland is less bigoted uh, on skin colour than England. And there's a fascinating correspondence with, uh, between Warren Hastings uh, and he, he's got an Anglo-Indian step-grandson uh, who is, he, they need to get educated. And, he, and they're weighing up whether to send him to London or to Edinburgh to be educated. Mm. They, and the, the, the balance is that uh, uh, he'll, he'll, he won't be persecuted if he goes to, uh, to Edinburgh, but he will pick up a Scots accent, which, which, may, which may restrict his, uh, his success in future life. Worried for How does one weigh up these different ways of being social disadvantaged? <laughs> uh, but he ends up in Edinburgh. And the same is true of a lot of the big Anglo-Indian families who make fortunes and have the money to send kids home. The Skinner family, for example, originally uh, from, uh, uh, from, from uh, Horrors, I think, and, and, and they end up all over East Lothian in Abilady and there's a Hercules Skinner who's an Anglo-Indian living in, living in Long Nidri and, yeah. and all these sort of guys. So suddenly, you know, it's a huge difference in, in, in diversity and, and, and genes coming into the country at this point. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, because, because Scottish networking also tended to concentrate wealth in very few hands, which in any case was a, was a Bengal and Indian phenomenon. So it was actually exaggerated quite possibly in, in Scottish nabobbery. You also get um, a lot of, there's no question that you get more intermarriage in India between the Scots than you with do, the English. Yeah. The English often sit in the presidency towns and hang out with each other, and the Scots often take the jobs for whatever reason up country in courts like Delhi or Lucknow or Hyderabad, and often end up with Indian wives and, and Anglo-Indian kids. And that's the, same, that's the same across the world, because that's why, of course, you have um, four or five main Scottish chiefs, including one paramount chief of Native American tribes, because the rate of the rate of intermarriage, uh, both in uh, with the First Nations in Canada and with uh, uh, Native Americans in, in what's now the United States, is much much higher. Amazing. And so, in New Zealand, Maori. Yes. Scots and Maori. Yeah. yeah. Um, Scottish higher education, um, a major feeder of, yeah. of the kind of imperial machine. Um, absolutely, it's a it's a feeder. It's been a, a feeder since uh, the the. the Middle Ages and early modern period, because uh, per capita, 
by the 18th and indeed into the early 19th century, Scotland had uh, arguably got more university and related places than any other European country, and that changes in the 19th century. But it's a, for a long time, it's a huge, uh, I mean, although still a very small scale, but a huge comparative boost. I'm going to single two things out because a lot of it actually depends on the nature of the curriculum. So the Edinburgh Botanical Garden, which originally, which was originally founded off the high street in Edinburgh, was uh, came out of discussions by uh, Sir Robert Sibbald and Balfour, Andrew Balfour, and fed itself directly into the establishment of the Royal College of Physicians in Edinburgh on St Andrew's Day, 1681 which then went on to found the Edinburgh Medical Faculty in 1726. But the point is that the, uh, the pharmacopoeia, which was based on that, uh, on that garden, remained in print as the standard work till 1846. And this was critical because the Scottish medical schools used botany as an extension and an intercalated part of their medical, wouldn't, they didn't call it that, of their medical degrees into the 19th century and, and so the, the development of botanic gardens throughout the British Empire, starting, perhaps there was an early one, but certainly starting at St. Vincent in 1683, uh, when General, uh, General Melville, who himself was an Edinburgh medical graduate, uh, took over the, Fre the, the French colonies uh, that had been taken in the Seven Years' War in the West Indies, invited one of his, uh, one of his fellow graduates to come and found botanic garden at St. Vincent. Uh, which then went on to Kolkata and a whole range of other botanic gardens to New Zealand and throughout the, throughout the world was based not just on botanists, and there were many, of course, great uh, amateur and indeed professional botanists, but on medical graduates. So there's a strong confluence between Scottish medical education and Scottish plants. And John Hope, who is professor at Edinburgh, ran a global uh, network of his former graduates in the 18th century uh, asking to be alerted to new plants which might take root in Scotland on the basis that he wanted to be able to, de to develop Scottish industry uh, through commercially applicable means or on a botanical basis. So once again, it was what are the economic uses of the elephant, uh, that kind of famous Scottish starter essay. Um, you know, so <laughs> what, what are the economic uses of the knowledge we've gained? And the second element in higher education, just like to, to flag up and at lightning speed, is the huge importance of the crossover of the uh, engineering and physics curriculum, or natural philosophy it was called, with shipbuilding in the 19th century. So in Glasgow, for example, Thompson, Lord Kelvin, brought in demonstrators from Napiers and other yards, and they presented to the students a technical problem which had to be fixed. Uh, which was presenting itself as Napier's Yards, and the students worked on fixing it. There was, and moreover, people like Kelvin and, and uh, many of his, uh, his uh, allies and fr friends and graduates became business people in their own right, as well as uh, working across industry and higher education in this sense. And this, this all had a huge impact on the development of Scottish innovation entrepreneurship worldwide in the 19th century. And again, just focusing on those um, nice botanic gardens in India for a second. You have Roxburgh, mm -hmm. Kidd, all these, all these guys trained in Edinburgh, sitting in Calcutta, developing commercially viable strains of things like rubber, coffee, and, and they're, but they're looking at using, they're anyway amateur or mm. uh, enthusiasts over a much wider area. So copying, d d drawing botanical drawings, yes. a lot of which get sent back to Edinburgh. 
Yep, that that's right. They're actually they're actually under uh, what seems to be um, discovery science, identity taxonomical science is actually at the same time product refinement. So that's one of the reasons that that Scots become in uh, Malaya, Malaysia, so dominant in uh, the rubber industry because that's they they they've already undertaken a, a shrewd assessment of what represents quality and non-quality product and what is saleable. And and then moving forward, jute. Absolutely. So by, I mean the interesting thing is of course uh, Kolkata. Kolkata is the the as it were the the foundation pin of the East India Company's uh, company state projection in uh, in India, um, as well, they could tell you a lot more than I could. Uh, but in the 19th century, jute becomes one of the great industries at the at, at that settlement. So by the turn of the 20th century, there are something like 300,000 Indian workers working uh, for Dundee merchants alone, in terms of the 300,000. Uh, so it's a huge. There's a huge offshore workforce. Uh, in the sense, in that sense, globalization is a very old story indeed. There's a picture in one of those Charles Allen books. I think it's called a Raj scrapbook, which is mm. full of old sepia photographs of Raj stuff, of a Dundee High School reunion dinner in Calcutta, and there are about <laughs> 400 men. There's 400 men in the room. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All in dinner jackets. <laughs> That's it. So that that so it's huge. It's room full of people. So I mean, though we're trying to dwell, one of the enormously uh, significant things in Scotland. I mean, uh, we we all know about Scotland's associational, its geographical, and its educational networks, is that although from the middle of the 18th century the higher nobility tended to uh, be more likely to attend uh, English private public stroke public schools, that didn't happen with the lower nobility persuasively until a much later date and that actually people who are significant local landowners, significant uh, owners of patronage and capital were themselves schooled alongside much more humble individuals and so a ready-made network existed which wouldn't have existed in a largely stratified and highly localized school system as was the case south of the border because the Scottish Borough Grammar Schools had a lot, Dundee High School, Dundee High School uh, being honorary uh, included yeah. as one of them, uh, had a great deal in common between each other as well as internally as regional centres. So we've talked about how the Scots disproportionately outnumbered the English in India. What about America? Is that only after the clearances or is it from the beginning is, 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 is the colonies a, a major Scottish contribution? There's a major Scottish contribu uh, contribution, but actually, um, although a lot of a lot of um, those who are who are cleared in the 19th century go to Canada rather than the United States, so there is a period when the United States is dominant as a, a destination. But actually, there's a lot of Scottish withdrawal from the United States because the the uh, uh, Scot and Scots are demonised by many during the American War of Independence, not least in the Southern states, because. There's, uh, uh, not because they're involved in the uh, in the slave trade or the the secondary uh, uh, the secondary businesses associated with that trade, though they are, but because they're actually they're actually seen as too engaged in the capital economy of the United Kingdom. After all, Glasgow had what 51% at its peak of uh, the uh, UK tobacco trade alone 
in the late 1760s. So we're looking at a period where these merchants are very highly capitalized and they're also very highly indebted and they're also very involved in the home economy. They have to be expelled to allow the American economy to grow and so a lot of Scottish interests are displaced. Anyone interested in reading more on that, there's a spectacular book I highly recommend by Maya Jasanov at Harvard called Liberty's Exiles, and she follows this diaspora of, of the losers. We always hear about the winners of the War of Independence, but those who, who fight on the Union side uh, and, and, get, and get thrown out, and people like, for example, Sir David Octoloni from Persia, oh. who goes briefly to Scotland and then heads straight off to India, where he spends the rest of his life, ends up with 13 Indian wives, each with her own elephant. Uh, and <laughs> Was that, was that a deal breaker if that wasn't an elephant? <laughs> Only marry a wife if she's got a dowry of at least one elephant. That's right. That's right. Uh, but again, again, this sort of extraordinary diaspora of Scots. Yeah. But Canada, a big, big Scottish story. Uh, uh, absolutely, and not least in the funding of the of the Trans-Pacific Railway. So I mean, the, the, and of course in supplying Canada with uh, a number of its early prime ministers. And interestingly in the shape of uh, Scottish radicalism, in the shape of uh, William Lyon Mackenzie's rising of 1837-8, an attempt to impose an American constitution on Canada within the British Empire, something which happens quite a lot, of course it happens in India, with the foundation of the Congress movement and the yep. involvement of at least three Scots, and including Hume, Octavian Hume no. whose, um, whose uncle David was of course Hume, a you know, no. Greek, Greek radical, so it all runs in the family. So in a sense, Canada less of a surprise, but until um, you told me about it, I had no idea about Scots and Japan uh, and the shogunate. Uh, no, exactly. So I think one of this, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fun, small, it's a, and it's rather a large story because, uh, uh, but uh, to be ve uh, uh, very brief, um, uh, Thomas Glover, who's, who, uh, whose father is the harbour master at Fraserburgh, uh, starts work for Jardin Matheson, decides that there's, a, there's an opportunity in Japan which is just opening up, moves to Japan in 1861, funds both the, show, the, the, the current shogun regime and the new Meiji modernizers, and really annoys the British government by, fun, by funding the rebels, <laughs> but then puts his lot in with the rebels, who then commission three ships. Uh, the, the, uh, Glover says, I know where you can get these three ships, uh, which is, funnily enough, through his brother, who's a shipping agent in Aberdeen <laughs> from Hall's Yard, I knew that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, uh, and then um, uh, Glover's friend Hugh Matheson helps to get, uh, and Glover himself helped to get the Chushu Five, five very senior Japanese out of Japan in order so they can uh, they can uh, be trained by a Scottish chemist in London and in the and in the Glasgow Yards, and then uh, they in turn. Um, uh, uh, ask Hugh, uh, Hugh Matheson, uh, who asked his friend Lewis Gordon, professor of engineering at Glasgow, to give him uh, a, a, a new principal for the new Imperial College of Engineering in 1882. Um, uh, Gordon hands it on to Rankin. Rankin says he's too old and hands it on to a graduate student who then, Henry Dyer, at 25, becomes president, the first president of the Imperial College of Engineering. Uh, a connection with, uh, with the Glasgow chair, which goes on, uh, to the point where um, uh, Barr is the professor of engineering, and Barr and Stroud, once again that, that link between business and higher education, the firm Barr and Stroud uh, recommends its FA3 rangefinder uh, to uh, the Japanese government in 1903-4. It's bought by the Japanese Navy. It's the only rangefinder in the world, the Model 3, which at which, uh, that point can find range up to 5,500 meters 
and as a result, uh, the 11 Russian battleships are sunk in 1905 at the Tsushima Strait, including the first battleship uh, uh, sunk by modern battleships sunk by gunfire alone. Which so, you can argue is yeah. one of the great pivotal points of history. It is. The, the first defeat of European army by an Asian army. Exactly. The, st the, the status of Japan as a major power uh, was very much bound up with the FA-3 rangefinder, and that was recognized in the post-victory photo, which shows uh, the dignitaries of Imperial Japan, including the, Victor the victorious admiral, uh, laid out in, in a garden with one very tall, gaunt, bearded individual in the middle of them, viz. Thomas Glover, <laughs> whom there are still two million visitors a year to, his, uh, to the Glover House in Nagasaki. So they remember, even if we don't. And China. I mean, obviously, opium, Jardine Matheson, uh, one of the, the big Scots narco story. Let's go there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I mean, it's, uh, uh, absolutely. Jardine, Math Jardine Matheson, interestingly enough, made a great deal about being Scottish as a farm overseas, even in the 1830s. And uh, they, because Scottish, let's say, I don't know if you're familiar with Chinese Guangxi, where that, that kind of... Uh, Again, regional educational associational networking, which makes business possible. But that was the methodology that Jardine Matheson used with the Hong Kong and Southeast Asian merchants. And that brought that ma making a network, hosting dinners for them, um, having little trips. And that helped to create the situation where um, the opium trade grew so big in China that the, uh, that the empire was uh, inordinately hostile to it because it was seen of course, as a locus of foreign control. It must be said, I would say, that, that actually opium was not viewed, it's not, you can't just transplant it to, you know, the mean streets of class A drugs. Opium was, though it is one, opium was not viewed in the same way in the 1830s as it is now. There was a, there was a mixed view about the benefits of opium the 18, up to the 1890s. White ladies eating laudanum yes, in the evening. Exa and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. You can't quite see Jardine Madison as just, you know... It's not an extension of train spotting. It's no. not an extension train spotting, absolutely <laughs> not. But nonetheless, it is, still, it is still controversial, as Disraeli says, one druggy filling both his pockets with opium as fast as he can. You know? <laughs> um, so, we live in an age of culture wars. You have um, uh, uh, the Tories, Oliver Dowden, making uh, election noises about how we should be proud of our imperial past. There's nothing mm. to be ashamed of. Um, you have equally vociferously people calling for a, a proper accounting of empire. How should we as Scots look back on our forebears in, you, in your view? Well, if the, uh, there are certain things. One, I'm not in favor of eradicating history because um, I don't think you understand your past by forgetting it. Uh, but I'm very much in favor of uh, facing up to it and understanding that Scotland was both a much more diverse country than we sometimes think in past centuries, and I don't just mean that in, in, in all sorts of ways, but also that it was a, that it was a country whose innovation and uh, successes to a great extent depended on its access to patronage and capital, which to a great extent depended on its global footprint, which to a great extent depended on the protection to that global footprint offered by the British and East India Company forces and by the Royal Navy. So Scotland might have succeeded in uh, not only in helping the British Empire, but establishing the, its ambitions of a great trading empire in the 18th and 19th centuries. But it did it uh, because it was a partner in the British Empire and not for any other reason. And given that there was, that 
empire and access to imperial markets was a major driver of, uh, of the union. Would you argue that the end of empire has, has in a sense, taken that logic away and, uh, and, and the, the, the cement of the union has crumbled? I don't think there's an under, a sufficient understanding throughout the UK to the about two things. One is the extent to which uh, the union was an instrumental bargain in Scotland, that uh, the, the British empire was a huge benefit and without a huge benefit, it's a, it's a more difficult uh, uh, benefit to sell. And secondly, the change in the nature of Britain itself. So if you compare the Empire Exhibition in 1938 with its Scottish Pavilion, Scottish Avenue, Scottish National Tent, the Anne Clachan uh, Sc uh, Scottish, I mean, it's a bit twee, okay, but it was Scottish <laughs> village, which, which uh, uh, appears in most of the, uh, the Scottish uh, exhibitions from the early 20th century onwards and is a real favorite with English visitors. Um, then to the 1951 Festival of Britain, which is entirely focused in London with two small touring exhibitions, which is purely Anglophone, which, is purely Anglophone, which moves away entirely from the British and British and New Zealand, British and Scottish, British and South African model of identity towards, uh, Brit towards a Britain where the diversity is at home, but the nation is effectively unitary. So actually the Empire Windrush uh, is incorporated to a, to a significant extent for the first time in the Festival of Britain. That's very praiseworthy, but one of the things that happens as a consequence of that is the idea that Britain is culturally unified but ethnically diverse begins to take root, which is very progressive, but it begins to take root at the, at the cost of, of actually understanding that it's, a, that it's a multinational state. So the idea that it's a unitary, singular entity rather than an international sprawling joint or secondary identity is a huge change, and I, that change is not uh, not appropriately or significantly acknowledged or indeed understood by many of those who've embraced it. Do you think that Scotland is now more insular than it's been over the last 100, 200 years? Or do you think we're still uh, an outward-looking global country? I think Scotland is very... Uh, uh, I, I mean, boy on borders, I can hardly say Scotland's interesting. <laughs> but, you know, when you... When you I, I grew up when 79% uh, of the Scottish population read the Sunday Post, which was its peak... Uh, it's, Urwali, it's peak penetration. And it's, I mean, I grew up on Francis Gay and the Horn Man saying, I saw a number 18 bus going down Socky Hall Street number. Then it, another one came the other way. It makes you think. Uh, I think... <laughs> <laughs> then the, you, you're in a situation where Scotland is much more outward-looking than it was uh, at the critical end of empire period in the late 60s, early, uh, early 70s. Uh, so, yes. That was an oddly... I mean, it was. those days when you, you had to go to the chiropody section of boots to get olive oil. And... Uh, uh, absolutely, <laughs> that's right. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, Glasgow was truly the dear place without greens. And, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, those those days very much changed. It's fifties to the 40, late forties to the seventies, complete sort of contraction. Yeah, that's uh, right. That's right. But it's uh, but it doesn't it doesn't last because it, 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 a it can't last and b the empire finally disappears. Twenty five colonies get independence between sixty one and sixty seven. And if you look at and I've looked at some of the obituaries of once again those Scottish border grammar schools even into the twenty first century up to 40% of their former pupils 
have had imperial experience. So suddenly, although again this is still a relative elite, it's quite a large elite by this stage, a huge set of opportunities, links and networks drops off people's horizons in the 1970s and 80s for the first time. And that's the period when it becomes least likely for Scottish graduates to get a job in Scotland by the late 70s, early 80s. It's recovered quite a bit now, but there's a huge, but we suddenly, these guys were all geared up to go and work somewhere else. And there was no somewhere else to go and work. And so uh, optimistic for the future, do you think Scotland uh, has to be a global Scotland now? I think, Scott, I think Scotland has always, or nearly always, been a global country. I recommend it be yet more global, because although I think there's a great deal that's going on, and I think the First Minister is going to, going to be uh, talking about some of that later today, about the uh, International Programme for Women in Conflict Zones, there's an awful lot that's going on that's really important and central, an awful lot of um, uh, public discussion, and that is, uh, and that is not limited to Scotland is extraordinary, uh, narrow, uh, repetitive, and falls into certain very limited patterns. So I think one of the things that's happening in the United Kingdom as a whole is there is a huge amount of global uh, engagement with the world, but at the same time, there's a huge amount of under-reportage of that global engagement. And the society that is being fed to us fundamentally through the main organs reporting it is not the society in which people actually live. I was in just come back from um, uh, from Bewley and looking at the Pictish stones up there. You've got at Nig, you've got Paul and Anthony in the desert of Egypt. You've got uh, uh, some of those uh, hunting scenes derived from Sasanian Persian yeah. bowls. So the idea that Scotland has has I think has always had a, a much wider hinterland than, than we realise, and, and and this book brings out. Extraordinary, like Japan. I mean, who knew the, the, the Meiji and Japan? It's, a, it's an absolutely wonderful overview um, and, and, and very accessibly written. It, I think there's a great deal of pressure often on those teaching history uh, in the academy to, to write from their fortresses of specialization and to, and to uh, uh, guard, uh, to, to create books that are, can be carefully guarded and policed. Uh, and, and it's much more dangerous to write a book like Murray has very bravely done, which covers the entire globe over many centuries. Uh, and it's, it's a spectacular piece of work. So please, a, a big round of applause for Murray Pittock. We have time for some questions. Uh, finish. I, we don't have time questions. We have time for one question then. <laughs> and, and two questions. I'll break the rules. But quickies, please. Thank you. I, I just loved what you said about the importance of history so that we have to face up to the past. And, and thinking about the 1830s and the 1840s in Hong Kong, I'd just like to challenge you a little bit maybe about what you were saying about Lord and, um, and we can romanticize that and so on. But in, in terms of the nature of that transaction, Lin Zexu, who was in charge in the Chinese side in Hong Kong at that time, his greatest threat was to write a letter to Queen Victoria and threaten to not supply the British nation with rhubarb and they'd all become constipated. <laughs> that, that was his biggest threat. And in the context of that, the, the nature of the transaction was really Palmerston sending his gunboats and threatening the Chinese who did not want to, to 
to buy opium. So do we not really need to face up from that rather than gloss up and say it was a bit ambivalent about what people face? Because that was the nature of the transaction in so much of our colonial history. Do we not really have to face up to that? Uh, well, I, I, uh, the, 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 the uh, uh, transaction needed for the first opium war I had to condense very quickly. And the issue is that Jardim Matheson were able to persuade palmists. One of the reasons that Disraeli didn't Disraeli didn't like <laughs> didn't like them. But um, uh, uh, I'm not suggesting that it wasn't a, a, um, a power play based on the interests of Scottish capitalism within the British Empire. No, I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm suggesting is that we have to understand the opium trade. Although people, uh, uh, as a global trade, because opium was a legal drug, and indeed it was being recommended by doctors as late as the 1890s. So I'm just appealing for a, for a historical understand for a historical understanding here that, in a way, that uh, uh, although it was controversial, it didn't occupy the same space as we now do. The power play, however, the imperial power play, is of course directly about commercial interests. Quickly, the last one here. Would you agree that Scotland, at this moment, is really a blank page waiting for the future to be filled in with the decline of the British Empire, disappearance of the British Empire, and the other great bringer together of the, the, the nations of the UK, the Presbyterian religion? We've now got a situation where both of these elements are much diminished and yet we have Gordon Brown, who's descended from a long line of Presbyterian ministers, <laughs> who's a great advocate for the continuance of the Union. Is it a blank page, and where are we going to have this going now? <laughs> crystal, so, crystal ball type. So I don't, I don't think it's an entirely blank page. I think there's a, there, there is a lot going on, not all of which, as I was suggesting, is uh, fully reported. But what I do think is that... Um, is that there is there are quite a lot of decisions to be made, however Scots make them, and that the the you know when she won the Hamilton by-election in 1967, Winnie Ewing had this image of herself on top of the globe, stop the world, Scotland wants to get on, which was in a sense a response to the loss of empire. But um, I'm not sure if that was a question. I'm not sure it's yet been answered. Ladies and gentlemen, please the last big round of applause for Murray Pettit.